everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am with my good friend, D. D, how you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great. Glad to be wrapping up season one. It has been a heck of a year. Oh my gosh. I'm so proud of what we've done and proud of what we've built and looking forward to season two. Yeah. Overwhelmed by the amount of support that we've gotten from all of our listeners. Can't be more excited about what season two is going to hold and want to remind everybody to, of course, subscribe, give us a five-star rating if you can. But most importantly, our new feature is on Patreon. If you would like to join our Patreon group, we have several tiers. And for this time, if you join now, you get prizes when you join. You can become one of our executive producers. You can win headphones, you can get a coffee mug that's personalized and engraved and a say in what we're talking about in our next season. There's all kinds of good stuff that comes along with the Patreon membership. So go to patreon.com forward slash Shirley podcast and uh, pick a tier to help us out. That's right. We're not asking for a, a bunch of free money here. We're giving away good quality stuff, right? And just to clarify, this is not the last episode of season one. No. This is kind of a special edition for tonight, and we will be back with a matchup between Prince, Sign of the Times, and Joshua Tree by U2. Two masterpieces of 1987. We're going to dive in, break them down, analyze it, give our opinions, and see where we come down on those two big-time albums. So for today's episode, Jason... When you were growing up, did you ever listen to Paul Harvey on the radio? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think he may possibly be my favorite voice announcer on the radio ever. He would do the news, and did you ever listen to the rest of the story? Oh, yeah, for sure. Paul Harvey is from my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've got a little homage for today's episode. It's going to be a shorter episode. Let's hear it. All right, here we go. It was 1951. Shelby stood anxiously at the Warner Brothers recording studio, not sure about what was going to happen next. He had only recently moved to California in hopes of making it big, and so far, he hadn't had a whole lot of success. He was far from home on his second marriage and had a young boy he had grown to adore depending on him. But little did he know the profound impact that this upcoming recording session would have. A hundred years ago, the population of Eric, Oklahoma was 971, which is about 38 more than its population is today. <laughs> And in April of 1921, that population increased by one when Bill and Ora welcomed their third son into the world. Shelby would go on to learn horse riding and fiddle playing from Bill, and so from a young age, he would ride in rodeos, and at 15, he formed a band called the Plainview Melody Boys, who would periodically play on station KASA in Elk City, Oklahoma. When Shelby was only 19, he married his first wife, Melva Miller, herself only 17 at the time. Shelby became close with Melva's young cousin, Roger, taught him how to play the guitar, and bought him his first fiddle. Roger Miller would grow up to become a successful country musician himself, 
You probably know his song, King of the Road, Trailers for sale which was a number one hot country single and reached number four on the Hot 100. But this seed that shall be planted would not be the biggest mark he would make on the world of entertainment. Though he tried to enlist for World War II, his rodeo injuries kept him out of the military, so instead he worked as a welder for oil drillers. Then, in 1946, at the encouragement of Ernest Tubb, he decided to leave the oil field, leave Oklahoma, and pursue his love of music. He recorded his first single, moved to Fort Worth, Texas, and for three years he toured the South, but was ultimately unable to hit it big. So, in 1950, he brought his second wife, Edna, and her young son, Gary, to Hollywood in hopes of establishing himself as an actor or a singer. But, after a year, he had only had a handful of parts, mostly uncredited. And that included the movie he was about to record for, uncredited for the part he played in the movie, and uncredited for his part in the audio track that he was about to record. Yes, uncredited for the part that would become one of the most iconic recordings in history. Now, as it turned out, Shelby would ultimately be a success as a singer and as an actor. Just a year later, in 1952, he would land his first big role in the movie High Noon as Ben Miller, one of the gang who would face off against Gary Cooper. A year after that, two songs that he had written would become hits for Teresa Brewer and Hank Snow. Then, in 1958, he had two career-making events. First, he was cast as Peter Nolan in the series Rawhide, a role he would play for the next eight years. Second, was that he had recorded a song that would be his biggest chart topper, going gold in just three weeks and hitting number one on the Hot 100. The song? It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. It has sold well over 100 million copies to date, but I am saying today that his uncredited contribution to one of his earliest movies surpasses even this in its impact on the entertainment world. His acting career didn't stop with Rawhide either. He was in more than 60 movies and television roles, including The War Wagon with John Wayne, The Outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood, Silverado with Kevin Klein, Kevin Costner, and Danny Glover, and Hoosiers, where he was literally sitting next to Gene Hackman on the bench, helping coach the team. He was also one of the original cast members of Hee Haw, which he wrote the theme for. He also had quite a bit of success as a recording artist as well. He had several more gold records. He won a CMA in 1968, Songwriter of the Year in 1992. He also won the Western Heritage Award for nine years in a row for his television work. But I maintain it was his 1951 recording that will be his most lasting legacy. And most people don't even know he was the man responsible. So, what was Shelby Woolley, who went by Sheb, 
about to record on that fateful day? Well, he was just one of a handful of actors they had called back that day to do some recording they needed to finish up the movie Distant Drums. Sheb did six different takes, and the last three ended up in the movie. Then all six takes went into the Warner Brothers vault, only to be used again in 1952 and in 1953, three times in 1954, including the Judy Garland version of A Star is Born, twice in 55, and again and again over and over for the next 20 years, but nobody noticed. Nobody except a young film production grad student at USC named Ben. In his studies, Ben had noticed Sheb's work and was impressed. So impressed that he and his buddy Richard would record it from A Star is Born just to put it in their 1974 student film, The Scarlet Blade. Ben would graduate the next year, and then two years after that, he would get his first credited job as a sound designer. This job allowed him to do research in several sound libraries, including the one at Warner Brothers, where he was able to find Sheb's original recordings. And it was this discovery that led to its proliferation in the 1980s, 90s, and on into the 21st century. His friend Richard used it in his movies as well, including Poltergeist, Batman Returns, Planet of the Apes, and Madagascar. Other sound editors became aware of Sheb's recordings and used it in their films as well. Disney films, Spielberg films, Joe Dante has used it in at least five of his films. Peter Jackson was so impressed that he deliberately cranked the volume when Sheb's voice was used in Lord of the Rings and when Quentin Tarantino learned the significance of this recording while it was being put into Reservoir Dogs, he called a break and had his sound crew come and listen to its first appearance way back in Distant Drums. In fact, since Ben discovered Sheb's recordings back in 1977, while finding sounds for a new movie called Star Wars... Sheb's voice has been used in over 130 films and television episodes, and Ben Burt found it in a canister marked, quote, man getting bit by an alligator and he screams, end quote. Because it wasn't Sheb's singing voice, but his screaming voice that he recorded on that faithful day back in 1951. And though Sheb played Private Jessup in Distant Drums, it was a memorable moment in a film two years later called The Charge at Feather River, where Ben Burt first heard Sheb's scream as another young private is shot in the leg a young private named Wilhelm, which is why, if you haven't guessed it already, he named it the Wilhelm Scream. <coughs> and that is the story, as best I can tell. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know it from Star Wars for sure, <coughs> Return of the Jedi for sure. <coughs> Indiana Jones. Indiana uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
without a doubt. It's iconic. That's good, man. You, you did some research on that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it was just crazy when you find out that the guy responsible for the one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater and the theme to Hee Haw is the guy who did the Wilhelm scream. That's incredible. That's incredible. I'm going to have to go back and watch Hoosiers just to figure this guy out. So... All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this mini episode. Coming soon, D. This is going to be amazing. We are going to break down and analyze Prince's Sign of the Times album versus U2's Joshua Tree. And then after that, around Christmas time, we're going to discuss and debate Lethal Weapon versus Die Hard. Christmas movies. Absolutely Christmas movies. Just in time for the holidays. All right, everybody. So be sure and join us for that. We can't wait. Look forward to seeing you then. (laughs) 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 We we ought to do our uh, our impressions. (laughs) Oh, man. Ah!